Welcome to Science Fiction Double Feature. This month, we're hanging out with the living dead, talking certain dark things with Silvia Moreno-Garcia. Then we talk to Deborah Hyde to find out why hanging out in your kitchen is the best place to fend off a vampire. Dark Things is the second novel by Mexican-Canadian author Silvia Moreno-Garcia. The book takes place in Mexico City, a very different Mexico City than the one in our universe. First and foremost, in this universe, different species of vampires exist, and Mexico City has banned vampires from the city walls. However, they run the drug trade and generally cause havoc outside the city walls. But it's also a story about two people, Domingo and Atoll. So here's Sylvia telling us more about the plot of Certain Dark Things. Uh, Certain Dark Things is a novel about some rival vampires in Mexico City. It can be summarized as Narcos meets Dracula. Narcola. I enjoyed the difference between the two main characters. We have uh, Domingo, uh, who's very kind of naive and sweet, and Atul, uh, who's more sophisticated, I guess more worldly. Uh, what made them uh, an appealing duo to construct your novel around? Uh, well, yeah, just, just that, dyna- that dynamic that you have one character who's a little bit more experienced, a little bit more weary of the world, and then you have this other person who is uh, much more innocent. And you also have a character who is young, and he's from a kind of like a poor, hard scrabble background, but he's he's not jaded, right? So he's managed to keep a lot of this happy view of the world, even though his circumstances are not perfect. Because I think many times when people depict poor people in fiction, they depict it as like, oh my God, it's like they're living in filth and squalor and they're so terribly unhappy. And my experience, you know, living sometimes in economic circumstances that were not the best and in neighborhoods that were not the best is that we are not living in a tragedy all the time. We find pleasure in the small things and we find happiness and we don't look at ourselves and think like, oh my God, my my life is just like the most awful thing in the world. We just keep going and we have dreams and hopes and uh, teenagers in poor neighborhoods also have dreams and hopes. And so that's that's basically Domingo. And Atwood comes from a completely different position. She's a very privileged person who has never had to think about where her next meal is coming from, which is what sets up some of the conflict here because she's a vampire. So now she has to think about what she's going to eat and she ends up finding Domingo as a as a really kind of nice food source. But he becomes not, not only a food source, but somebody that she actually has a connection with. Uh, and your previous book, uh, Signal to Noise, was about magic and music. Uh, what drew you to vampires for a second book? I like to change genres with every book, so I don't like to write the same thing, and I don't want to do any kind of series or long-term kind of stuff returning to the same universe. I find it boring, (laughs) so I wanted to do something that was very different from my first book, and, and my third book was completely different from my second book, and so on and so forth. So it's just, you know, I'm unlike other people who, I guess, are happy writing 
10 books set in the same universe with the same kind of tone. I always want to look for something else and also see if I can push the limits of what I can do. Cool. Uh, Are you a reader in that respect as well? Do you not like long, drawn-out series? Do you like standalones to read? Am I a reader? Yes. (laughs) Of a wide variety of of things. I don't just uh, read genre. In fact, I have been reading very little genre for the past year, more or less, except that I'm also a juror for the Shirley Jackson. So I have been reading a lot for that, but that's been kind of like work. And for my own self, yeah, I, I read a lot of other stuff. I don't necessarily read fantasy and science fiction that regularly these days. What I really enjoyed uh, about your novel, and I haven't read a whole lot of vampire books in the past, so maybe this is a normal thing, but that the vampires were a species and that you had your kind of subspecies. Uh, how did you come to that as an idea for your use of vampires? You know, it, it could have gone a number of ways. And, and in the beginning, I wondered if I was going to go with folklore and just, you know, use folklore as a basis and take it completely I guess with a question, you know, and and the thing about vampiric folklore is is that it can get pretty weird. Vampires do things and and react to certain things in ways that can can be a little bit funny. Um, so, for example, with with the type of Central Mexican quote unquote vampire creature that I used, uh, they're supposed to be they're born, you know, they they don't uh, you they can't transmit vampiricity, I guess. It's not viral. And um, and what happens is that when you reach a certain age, uh, puberty normally, you simply become this vampire creature, which is really a witch. It's like a vampire witch. And at night, you transform into an animal, which is normally a turkey. You fly through the air, you go into the houses of people, and you like feed on the blood of children. And there's no cure for it. There's nothing that can stop you. And you just do it. You're inherently kind of like this evil thing, uh, right? And so if you take that at face value straight up, it's it's going to be interesting experience. But it's going to be a very different experience than what I ended up doing. So I considered doing that, just, you know, going with the folklore straight on, following it in like the traditional way. But that would have been a different story. And I wasn't quite sure that I wanted to go that way. So I started kind of thinking of how could I graft or put this traditional folklore figure in a modern setting, in a in an ultra modern setting. How would it work? And what things would I have to change for this to not sound ridiculous because turning into a turkey sounds ridiculous. So so what could I do? And then I but then I also I kept thinking about um the old fashioned um well first of all how Many cultures seem to have figures that are vampiric, quote unquote. I won't say vampires, but vampiric because they're not exactly the same. But many cultures have figures that draw blood or feed off somebody else, which makes sense culturally and, you know, in, in many ways that you would have that fear of something that feeds on you. Um, and one, so there were like many, there are many kind of vampire things in, in folklore. And two, I, I just, I keep going back to, the figure of the vampire as portrayed in movies and films and how we only, we only kind of see this pseudo-European vampire. It's not even a European vampire per se, because if you look at folklore in the 1800s, it's very different, but but it's kind of like this Dracula, children of Dracula, right? And and how that's represented in film. And I, and I, kept, and I kept going back and thinking about my folklore vampire, and I thought, you know, what if these two 
modes of thought encounter themselves, but in a modern setting. And and that's what I meant. But that was like the idea is like, what if these two ideas about the vampire kind of find themselves in the same place and the same at the same time? And so I was like, okay, two different types of vampires. But then I thought, well, but there's this other kinds of vampires. So why aren't there like six or seven or ten? And so I ended up making all these, you know, vampire species and types and and kind of tried to find a rational explanation for all of it so that it, it wasn't like super folklore driven. Um it, it, it tried to it tried to, I wanted it to feel very neo noir, you know, very modern in that way. But but the origins were just like that. I was like, huh, well, you know, if there's like this type of vampire, why is this other type of vampire? And if they meet, you know, kind of like when the Frankenstein and the mummy meet, like if these two types meet, then what happens? In what kind of world would they meet and why? And and that kind of drove the narrative. But yeah, and and I like old vampire movies quite a bit. But yeah, but it was just like, well, if this European type met the turkey type that I was, you know, that I know from folklore, I was like, well, that would be interesting. They would not, would they recognize themselves and how would they react to each other? I was actually going to ask that question. Domingo seemed to have a lot of domain knowledge about vampires uh, and if that was a personal interest. Yeah. <laughs> Hammer films and all that, I used to like that quite a bit. And and that's one specific old-fashioned vampire. But but it's resonated. It, it had a surprisingly long uh, lifespan, I guess. Um, and then even even modern vampires, which are not the same as Christopher Lee vampires, not the same as Bela Lugosi vampires, carry some of the seeds and some of the ideas of those old vampires. So, yeah, so you could say the genome is strong. Some of the characteristics that we infused, you know, vampires in cinema and in popular culture in the 50s and, and before can still be seen in some of our modern vampires. And, and people sometimes don't even know where they got that from. You know, they just assume vampires have always been this way. And then you look back and you realize that, no, um, it was only in, 19, you know, in the 1950s that vampires got fans. But, but people just assume vampires have always been represented in this specific way. And it's not, but it's, but it's been a, you know, a surprisingly strong gene and some things that um, were used in the 50s, like the capes are gone and, and things like that. But, but some elements still are, you know, appearing in, in modern movies. I was uh, was tweeting about finishing your book uh, the other week, and uh, someone tweeted a really good Iranian. Well, it looks really good. I want to watch it. Uh, called a girl walks alone at night, um, and her like burqa is like kind of like her cape. Uh, so <laughs> I can totally see it. It even goes across cultures. These kind of yeah, like you said, genomes. Um, so both Signal to Noise and Certain Dark Things were set in Mexico City. Why set it in Mexico City other than it makes an excellent universe. Yeah, well, my third novel is not set in Mexico City. It's called The Beautiful Ones, and it's completely different from from that. Um, but in general, a lot of a lot of my stuff is set in Mexico City because, well, I grew up there and I didn't move away until I was a grown person. So a lot of, um, well, you know, I carry the cultural baggage. Just like you know, I said that the vampire genome is strong. The you know, Mexican cultural genome is is strong. You can't um, escape its pull in a way. And in another way, it's you know, fortunately, I guess for me, it's it's not a scenario that is that is explored many many times. So, whereas other people might worry about is this fresh or whatever, I don't really have that 
problem with much of my work because nobody has done it before, which which can be pretty bad sometimes when you're trying to sell something. Um, but on the other hand, yeah, I don't have to worry about has this been done 25 times before. It's like, it's like, well, you know, I've never seen, you know, it's we're hardly overflowing in Mexican vampire novels. So I guess it's, it's okay. I have read novels that are set in London here, and it's nice when they're actually correct. Um, so are some of the places that you mentioned in your book real places in Mexico City? I loved Domingo's tunnels, which I don't know if are real. Uh, yes, no, the neighborhoods are all real. Um, and uh, a friend of mine, well, not a friend of mine, but uh, somebody that I know online said that uh, they had never seen a more realistic description of one of the neighborhoods that is mentioned there. Um, I lived in one of the neighborhoods that is mentioned in the book. Um, and so, yeah, no, all that's, all that's real. And, uh, and, and that's, that's one of the things that happens is that oftentimes people mistake the things in my books that are real for not real and the things that are not real for real, if that makes any sense. Uh, so things that are, that are really do happen and, and really are there and like they think they're completely made up. And then the things that are completely invented, they have no idea about it. So one of the things that is completely invented in the book and that nobody seemed to have any idea about it is the detective the detective in the in the story is in a detective unit that would not exist in Mexico. So so that so that was kind of invented. And the fact that she does detective work is uh, is already an invention <laughs> in itself. Because let's just say that policing in Mexico is very different from policing in the United States or in Canada. You were nominated for a bunch of awards for Signal to Noise. Uh, did that have any influence on what you wanted to write next, or were you ready? Uh, deep into writing certain dark things. Oh, I had uh, I had already written certain dark things by the time Signal to Noise came out. No, it had it had nothing to do with it. Um, also, fortunately or unfortunately, it's not like uh, Signal to Noise was my breakthrough book. <laughs> so, you know, I was not you know. Uh, let's see that I did, I didn't have to do a part two because it's not like it sold you know. $200 million and was made into a Hollywood movie. And now I have to make a sequel because that's been my one hit. It was just like, it happened. It did okay, but it was not like, now I must do this for the rest of my life because it's my only chance <laughs> at anything. So failure can sometimes be very liberating. I read an interview about one of the reasons for writing the book was partly in reaction to the violence in uh, Northern Mexico now. And as kind of an addition to that, how strange is it to be watching kind of Trump from Canada, given all the kind of weird immigration politics in the U.S.? Well, you know, it's um, it's odd, but it's not unexpected in a way. I guess acceptance into society, I feel when you're a minority is always conditional and you kind of live knowing that it can be taken away, or at least I live knowing that I can be taken away. I don't know. Other people are very secure in their position in society. But this idea that, um, for example, like the days of racism are long gone and you will never be targeted again. I like I I never feel like that. I think always that we are in like kind of like a conditional sphere. And that's why we have to keep working on it because people can come along, not just Trump, but, you know, many people can come along and say you're not you don't matter. Uh, to our society and and get out and uh, and we don't want you and and you're just horrible. So in that sense, it's like I watch it with sadness, but also 
it's not unexpected. And, and, and I'm glad about the activism that I've seen going on in the United States, because I think sometimes we say that millennials are, you know, they've killed everything. They've killed the avocado. They've, I don't know, they've killed housing, diamond, the diamond industry, all that kind of stuff. They don't do anything and they're lazy. And, and we, we see that in, in popular media all the time, but I've seen a lot of young people get very angry about a number of things, including things like the way uh, Trump and other people are speaking about Mexican people and immigrants. And I think that kind of anger and action is good and, and it's good to see them. So, you know, I wish we didn't have to, and we were all kind of happy together and, and we got along, but, uh, but since it's not going this way, I'm, I'm glad to see that people are kind of pushing back. So you mentioned earlier about uh, not many people doing uh, Mexican vampire novels. Uh, are there other any aspects of Mexican culture or indeed Canadian culture uh, that you think would make uh, good universe building, but have been underused in any type of fiction? Uh, I think almost everything. <laughs> I mean, the problem with Canada is that um, you would think, or, or we think, you know, Canada is well must be well represented culturally because, well, it, it's it's a it's a wealthy nation and they speak English, which is also you know like a very popular language and the language spoken in Hollywood. But um, but for example, in Vancouver where I live, a lot of movies are are filmed here, but there's like no movie set in Vancouver. You have the city passing off as San Francisco, as New York, as London, anything that you can imagine, but never in Vancouver. It's, it's It almost seems to be taboo, like there's a movie set in Canada about Canada, unless there's like some super artsy indie movie that's funded by the Canadian Council that nobody sees, then it's okay to set it in, in Canada, you know, it's then it's fine. But even within, you know, even within that Canadian, like local landscape, um, for example, indigenous writers are not very well represented and have not been uh, well represented for a long time. I mean, there's a lot of things that um, that are not explored about the country where I live and the country where, where I'm from that I think are very interesting. Um, too many to enumerate, but, you know, sometimes, yeah, you look around and you're like, I wonder why nobody has done a story about this or about that. And part of it is because... Um, we live in a world that is very centric to the United States. It, you know, everything, every alien invasion is the United States is invaded, uh, which, which is actually really, really good because, you know, if there's a zombie apocalypse or an alien invasion, we're going to be fine in Canada, you know, and everyone's going to be fine in Mexico. It's just going to be like that part of the world that's going to explode. Like, like sometimes in some of these big movies, like, yeah, the Taj Mahal will explode or things like that. But it's, it's never like, it never seems to be like that relevant. So you're like, eh. We make landscapes in our mind, and we know, even though most of us have never been, you know, to places like New York or Chicago or San Francisco, we know them. You know, it's grafted into our culture. We can tell you there's a bridge there, and we can tell you that people in New York are annoying and mean, and, you know, they don't drive. They go everywhere on the subway. We know all these things, and then you wonder, like, how do I know all this? You know, how do I know all this stuff about a place that I've never been to, and it's because it's so big culturally. It just takes up so much space in the United States. But what that leaves, I mean, I think fortunately for people like me, is a lot of unexplored space around it because, you know, like nobody has gone this way. Nobody has said, well, why 
like urban fantasy, you know, every urban fantasy, it's like Chicago or New York, you know, like maybe LA third place, like, you know, so it's like, well, Chicago, New York or LA, uh, why not, you know, like try something different. Like even Vancouver would seem quite a stretch in that, in that context, you know, exotic Vancouver, Burnaby <laughs> to the South, you know, <laughs> like to the, no, sorry, to the, to the East and, and Richmond to the South. Yeah. Like that would seem like different just by itself. Now, if you go to Mexico, it looks even more different and and I think can be kind of novel. So if people are a little bit jaded about another another urban fantasy story set in Chicago, it's like, well, I have this option for you, my friend. So, I mean, that's kind of my hope. Maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> and people do genuinely love just Chicago, you know, and they never going to want to go out of that city. <laughs> <laughs> I like Chicago, but I think I enjoyed uh, something different like Mexico City as well. I read in another interview that there's very few Spanish speculative fiction publishers, or I guess Mexican fiction publishers, and that's the reason why you uh, write in English. Do you know, is it there's other genres that take precedence, or uh, is there a specific reason why there's no Spanish speculative fiction publishers? It's actually very similar to the to the publishing issue in Canada, there's also not basically there's like one or two speculative fiction publishers in Canada, which is a lot more than the ones in Mexico because they're at zero. Uh, so you know, hey, we've got two, <laughs> we've got Chuzine and we've got Edge, yay. Um, but what happens is that there's no real commercial publishing industry in in either country, less in Mexico, but I would say also in Canada. I mean, there's subsidiaries of American publishing house, like say Random House Canada or whatever, but locally there's no really kind of powerful local publishing houses. And there's a lot of independent literary presses that are very small all throughout Canada. Less so in Mexico, but there's also some. So what happens is that um, they're very dependent on funding from, from the government, from the country, right? The Canadian Council for the Arts. And when the Canadian Council for the Arts funds stuff, it, it obviously says we need to fund literary stuff that represents Canadian character. And it doesn't think that commercial speculative fiction and fantasy fulfills that mandate, which, you know, like, okay, I can see why they think that way. But since we don't have a real commercial industry, we actually do need some money for those kinds of books because there's no, nobody putting money into them otherwise. So you end up in, in a landscape, you know, very similar in both countries in which there is some funding for literary books and some literary presses, but there is no money anywhere at all for, for fantasy and science fiction or horror, which are considered commercial genres. So unless you are somebody that can write a literary book that is, has science fiction and fantasy elements or horror elements, that kind of stuff, then you're not going to get published you're never going to be out there or you're going to be with a very very specialized small press or the reality in Mexico where there's not even that is you're going to be self-publishing if that so Spain has a better local science fiction and publishing scene they actually do have a better industry but even there the the bulk of all the science fiction and fantasy even in Spain is translations from English language markets so they just translate whatever we do here over there in Spain. And there's some here and there, like I said, there's some presses that have popped up and whatever. These tend to be very 
small micro press efforts. And so the reality is that in Mexico, we are, if you go to the science fiction and fantasy section in any kind of bookstore, if you find a section, first of all, but if you do, if they do have one, the things that they're going to have there is going to be Game of Thrones, Stephen King, that kind of stuff. And you will never find a local author. I don't know. You can punch me if you find a local author there. And if you do, it's probably going to be from one of those literary presses, like I said, something that's like magic realism or whatever, and that managed to sneak in 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 some weird way onto that shelf. But basically, no, like there's nothing. So since there's nothing, like there's no opportunity, like, sure, I could create an industry on my own or I could write in English. So, you know, I wrote in English. Uh, I find it's the same if you look for, like, especially just random, smaller, even just chain bookshops, that you can't find many women on the shelves. Um, so I've kind of made it my mission to read at least 75% of all my fiction by women, uh, which is how I first read Signal to Noise. It's really aggravating because you, like, go to a shelf and you want to, like, find a new author and it's, and in every country it'll be, like, Game of Thrones or uh, Brandon Sanderson or Lord of the Rings, even though it's 80 years old. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I, I tell people don't look for me at the bookstore. <laughs> I mean, there are, I mean, I am, I am in, in, in bookstores, but sometimes people will be like, like there's one copy <laughs> in the bookstore of one of my books. And so, yeah. So I tell people, well, don't look for me there because it's going to be hard for to find if they have it. But, uh, but yeah, yeah. No, I mean, obviously there's big things like, Game of Thrones and Lord of the Rings and those dominate our cultural perspective and they dominate the bookshelf. Uh, you mentioned your third book. Uh, what is your third book about before we uh, end the interview? Um, the Beautiful Ones is a novel of manners set in a world inspired by 19th century France and it has the fantasy element is that there's two people that have telekinetic powers. So some people have said it's like dangerous liaisons, but with force users. Cool. And and that's out now. That's out now. And uh, and it's out in the UK, too. <laughs> and it's cheaper in the UK than in the US. So, you know, you, people should probably get it <laughs> before I change my mind and I, you know, eliminate the UK edition or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and finally, uh, you mentioned that you're not reading a lot of speculative fiction right now, um, but what books have you read recently, nonfiction or otherwise, that you'd recommend to, to anyone listening to read? Yeah. Well, yeah, the reason, like I said, why I'm not reading much right now is because I'm, the, I'm on the Shirley Jackson <laughs> jury, so I've got like a ton of books to read through that. So I'm, I'm like, I'm not reading anything for pleasure for, for a very long time. Um, I just got and having gotten through The Changeling by Victor Laval, Lavalle, um, but I've heard it's good, but I haven't gone through that. One of my favorite books last year that I did read while I was not in this uh, hurry, hurry, read all this stuff mode uh, was Carmen Maria Machado's first collection, Her Body and Other Party. And it, it was really good, getting a lot of awards everywhere left and right and it's getting them for a reason it's a very cohesive collection which is sometimes a problem but in this collection the story is really very you know it's like it's like a big puzzle they do form a picture together and it's a lot about 
the body, obviously, uh, but it's also about being a woman, about uh, sexuality, about being a lesbian, about relationships and all that kind of stuff. And there's these weird, fantastic, and sometimes disturbing elements in each tale. So I liked that quite a bit. So so that was one of my, my favorite reads of last year for speculative purposes. Cool. Brilliant. I'll put links uh, when the show goes up. Uh, that's all the questions I had. Thanks again for making the time. Uh, very much appreciate it. Yeah, no worries. Thank you for, for chatting with me. So many of us may be familiar with the standard European vampire trope. Fangs, doesn't like light, sometimes wears capes. Definitely not the type of people you want to bump into in the middle of the night. But of course, that's all fiction. I asked Deborah Hyde to find out what folklore has to tell us about vampires. My name's Deborah Hyde, and I write about why people believe in the malign macabre. I, I, everybody else can keep all of the um, all of the gods and the fairies and all of the nice things. I'm quite interested in why people believe in nasty stuff. And I edit the Skeptic magazine, so I'm not a believer, but I do think it shows something interesting about human nature. Cool. Uh, and that's quite of an interesting area to get interested in. Where did this come from? Did you did you always have an interest or did it come later in life? I think it came from a highly disturbed childhood. Um, there was, I, I, my mum was just really into horror and a load of my mad aunties believed in all this stuff. And so I grew up in, uh, in this environment of just finding out about spirits and, uh, you know, poltergeists and things like this. And it was, it was terrifying, but it was also, it was a really nice frisson too. I mean, it was something that was fascinating. So I grew up believing in it all, reading about it all. And if you start to read the right kind of stuff when you get into your teens and 20s, and you're not just reading popular paperbacks anymore, but you're reading anthropology and history and that kind of thing, it starts to dawn on you that it is a fascinating area, but it isn't about supernatural creatures. It's about people and and the constructs that we create cool uh so as mentioned the the novel certain dark things uh some of the central characters are vampires so i guess the first thing to delve into is what are vampires what historically have vampires been where did they come from historically well the word vampire is um slavic in origin probably bulgarian and there are lots of variants around uh, the Balkans and kind of, um, you know, Russian influenced places and Greece. Uh, and it's, it, it's a folkloric character, probably from pre-Christian times that was assimilated into kind of the Christian mythology because, you know, no, no religious environment is ever completely pure. You don't get the entirely orthodox version of things. You get a little bit of folklore creeping in as well. And it was somebody who came back from the dead to take the life from the living, who were, were usually people who were most closely related to it. We we probably have a fairly uh, media-driven view of vampires. So what, what did these medieval or pre-medieval vampires do? What were they like? 
what they would usually do, well, the first thing, the first myth that we have that they didn't have is that we have the, the vampire as an attractive, kind of erotic sort of a figure. And the vampires that came from folklore really weren't like that at all. I mean, they might they might want sex. There were some vampire husbands came back um, trying to be uh, erotic with their wives, but they weren't attractive. They weren't the kind of things that we would desire. They were ambulant corpses or um, spirits that had come back from the grave. And uh, so they would they would come to take the life essence. And really, the the sort of the more erotic, accomplished, um, aristocratic idea that we have about vampires comes from nineteenth-century fiction. They were uh, uh, they were found in you know earlier times, really amongst peasant populations, um, and they were noisome, ambulant corpses, if you like, not not like. More like, I suppose, akin to what a modern cinematic zombie would be. That is very different. So what historical evidence do we have for people about these beliefs? I I remember reading a blog uh, where there was a Venetian vampire that was buried with a brick in its mouth. Like, what types of things do we have that show that people believed in vampires? The interesting thing about the place where vampire folklore came from is that an awful lot of it was behind the curtain of the Ottoman Empire. So as far as the West was concerned, this place was a, a bit mysterious. Um, and really it was the prevailing of the of Western Europe, of the Austrian Empire specifically, over um, Ottoman Turks, which brought out a lot of this information that had probably been practiced for years. But it, sometimes it takes a stranger to come in and to look at a native population and to think, what on earth are you doing? That's when we get quite a rush of documentation um, telling about some of the cases that became a bit notorious later on. And it's usually Austrian officers or Austrian administrators going over and noticing these peculiar ritual practices that the locals performed upon dead people under some circumstances. And because going back and um, playing with body parts was sacrilegious, then that would... that. that Arouse their particular disgust and interest. Um, so, in the 1730s or so, there's an awful lot of these stories come out of Eastern Europe, and they 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 kind of come down to the same thing, really, which is that somebody dies, and then a lot of other people die afterwards. Not necessarily the same disease, but it's as though death itself is contagious. And so they go back to examine the bodies of the people who have died. And the people who um, haven't decomposed as they would have expected, they thought were sustaining some kind of unnatural life in the grave. And so they would do whatever they could to depotentiate them. Now, that includes things like burning a body, which you don't normally do because it's very expensive in fuel, or perhaps turning it face down so that if it decided to get up, it would be working its way down into the ground instead of up or perhaps binding it in some way, um, or perhaps putting rocks on the grave. Things like these, these apotropaic measures. Now, the interesting thing about when you get groups of death is that suggests to us some kind of um, some kind of pestilence in the environment. And in fact, vampire mythology is very much associated with um, outbreaks of plague, things like that. So when you have these uh, these outbreaks, 
if it's winter, you, you, it's very difficult to, to bury bodies because uh, you can't sort of get particularly deep into the ground. And um, also you don't have, you might not necessarily have the manpower to bury many, many people. Under these circumstances, you can get shallow graves. And so you can get wolves pulling people out of graves, which um, confuses the whole thing. It looks like either a wolf might be perhaps uh, trying to fight the vampire for you. Or it might be that you think the vampire is turning into a wolf. And we get both of these versions of, of the interaction between the corpse and the wolf um, in folklore. Uh, and if you've got corpses buried just under the ground, then unfortunately you're going to hear an awful lot of the disgusting noises, all of the popping and turning that bodies do as they decompose. And some people mistook this for uh, corpses chewing in the grave. There were, there were learned tomes written about why corpses chew in the grave. Um, so if you wanted to stop your plague pit performing its vampiric activities by chewing while, you know, presumably doing something supernatural at the same time, then you could stop them chewing by either binding up the jaw or by putting a brick in their mouth. And so it's thought that there are, that this is the significance of um, where you find these, uh, these unusual burial practices. <laughs> That's so interesting. Yes. Well, the, the funny thing is that we we are so symbolic in our literary and, and film interpretations of all of these measures that you take against vampires. But when you look at the history, really, they were being incredibly practical. Um, it seems like burying a, fa and a vampire face down so that it would be digging its way into the earth instead of out or, or staking it uh, wasn't necessarily to metaphorically kill its heart a second time, but just to peg it into the ground. Um, you mentioned wolves there for a second and in our kind of popular culture we get you know all of these creatures uh, existing together causing havoc or whatever whatever they get, get up to depending on the film or, or novel did these kind of folkloric things tend to group together or were they were they distinctive to different regions like you wouldn't necessarily have werewolves and vampires at the same time in the same place you do have werewolves in um, in Balkan and Greek literature. Yeah, they kind of intersected to a degree. Um, the time when werewolves really come out in the European tradition is it's a kind of it's a top down accusation. People were accused of being werewolves uh, in witch hunts. So that that's the most notorious cases of werewolves are not necessarily in the Balkans where you would have the most notorious cases of vampires. But they uh, yes, they, the, the traditions did coexist in, in Greek mythology too. You mentioned briefly about how the changes in the 19th century to vampires and the perception of them happened. But what are other kind of changes that are purely, I guess, cinematic or at least literature based that are different than from the folklore like is garlic a thing? Is silver a thing? All those sort of uh, emblematic things of how to stop a vampire. Oh, garlic was definitely used against traditional vampires. In fact, there was a, a Romanian man called Demetrius Maikira in the 1970s in Stoke in England who accidentally choked to death on a clove of garlic trying to repel vampires. It's assumed he was trying to repel vampires because he had all sorts of other apotropaic methods around his room, like salt across the threshold and that kind of thing so um yeah anything that was anything that caused a stench was supposed to be able to help to repel these uh these disgusting 
creatures. And um, there's a, a plant called Asfetida as well, which is very similar kind of stenchy sort of thing that was used against vampires. Uh, so, yeah, that's absolutely authentic. The literally draining the blood, that does happen sometimes in in the vampire folklore, but it quite often happens metaphorically as well. It's just, I, w- I would say that's more often actual, actually, that there is this gradual draining of a person's life essence rather than literally a penetration of the jugular vein and um, the sucking out of their blood. So in the novel Certain Dark Things, the the vampires are a species, and so as a species they have subspecies. So the European variants are uh, what the author calls necros, and they're very much of the biting your jugular, sucking your blood sort of thing. Um, but there's also Mexican vampires and things like that. Do you know of other uh, non-European folklore traditions about vampires? There are loads of vampiric type creatures. I tend not to use the word vampires because I think for sort of taxonomical purposes, it's useful to keep it confined to its its own area. But there are different creatures that suck blood and take the essence of the living throughout the whole world. I mean, one of my favorites is a penangal from um, Malaysia. And that is, uh, that is a witch, a blood-sucking witch who... Um, who takes off in the form of a head and entrails dangling underneath. And she flies through the forest at night and she looks for the blood of babies and um, and uh, recently delivered women to, uh, to suck. And uh, she has this long pointy tongue. Um, and then she will come back in, in the morning and she'll make her guts shrink enough to go back into her neck hole by dipping them in vinegar so if you ever thought there was a limit to human imagination i think the pen the pen and gal would illustrate that that isn't the case so yes these these creatures come from all over the place these uh these kind of unnatural predators i call them they they either metaphorically or allegorically take your blood and it's because our ancestors had to deal with random death an awful lot more than we did the one you just mentioned very much sounds like you would invoke that kind of creature if if a child died or the mother died shortly after giving birth. Is that the kind of? Absolutely, it's one of the you know they're they're two of the biggest themes really when you look at all of this folklore is um is people who die prematurely, and uh, it, giving birth was very dangerous in a pre-industrial society, um and being under five was also very dangerous in a pre-industrial society. So, uh. If you, in fact, there's one of the famous vampire cases, the case of Arnold Powell, where they were going through the graveyard looking at all of the people who had died, and this was a small community, small rural Balkan community, and um, there were two women who had died recently after parturition. They were in the ground with their babies, so that would give you an idea of statistically the number of people who would be expected to die during childbirth. You mentioned the case in the 1970s <laughs> of the man who choked on garlic. Are are vampires in, in places where I guess there are lots of kind of rural communities, do these myths persist? Does this folkloric tradition persist? Or is it now in realms of movies and media and things? Um, I, there have been cases cited in um, Serbia and uh, Bulgaria where people have done peculiar things in graveyards and it would be consistent with a belief in the walking dead uh and 
I would I would imagine it still lives because if you think about it, in London there are still evangelical churches that will offer you exorcisms or who will beat your children for you if they misbehave because they're infested with a demon. While you know in the modern world is not an inoculation against belief in folklore of this kind. So I would imagine that there are some people still working with this model of the world, yeah. Because we've now grown up with vampires for like a hundred, more than a hundred years, uh, when you think of Dracula and all these kind of versions of vampires, does that then influence the folklore? Or do you think it, the folklore is much more powerful? I think it must influence the folklore. I mean, because by now we're not looking necessarily at folklore, we're looking at urban legends. Um, folklore, I suppose, is... You know, if you look, if you look at something that's really really traditional, um, it must feed back into it. I'm just thinking about the various werewolf type type of sightings. There was the, the werewolf of Hull that was supposed to have been seen a couple of years ago in um, Yorkshire in England, and the ideas about werewolves have informed people's perceptions, and then they've they've generated this story, and it it ties back into the idea of of an old black dog mythology that's been around for ages um but it's it's a hybrid of that old mythology plus whatever people have identified as the motifs from from modern fiction so i i yeah and it goes back it creates more folklore it creates urban legends i think people use this stuff all the time cool uh so what do you think uh if if you think you're being stalked by a vampire what what in your opinion is the best way to fend against vampires Oh, if you're being stalked by a vampire, um, probably your your kitchen is the best place to be because uh, you could get a, some salt and put a ring of salt around yourself. It won't be able to cross that. Um, and then you could throw garlic at it because that definitely works. Then if you could track it back to its graveyard, you could identify the actual grave that it's in by taking a virginal white stallion and a virginal young man and riding over those that graveyard and where the horse stumbles that's where the vampire is having said that good luck finding a virginal young man in london (laughs) or a virginal white stallion that seems equally as uh improbable (laughs) i think the white stallion might even be easier (laughs) (laughs) cool brilliant uh thank you very much for your time you are very welcome i've enjoyed myself so there you have it If you're worried about vampires, stock up on the garlic, salts, and horses? Anyway, thanks to Sylvia Moreno-Garcia and Deborah Hyde for their time. You can find more details about their work in the show notes. Remember, the science fiction of the future depends on the science fiction we read today, so read wisely. Thanks for listening.